0: following the news this week, or, I mean, I'm assuming you follow the news, or if you follow sports in particular, I'm not a huge sport guy, but for whatever reason, this week I got real caught up in the the whole retirement of Serena Williams uh, thing. I was a few months ago, I remember watching the, you know, the movie with Will Smith about him as their dad, you know, growing up, King Richard, and, you know, the, the, the kind of, the hype around her is just staggering, And and one of the things that kept coming up this and last week is she played her last match, which she sadly lost, was that um, th- there's this discussion about whether or not Serena Williams might be the greatest athlete of all time. Um, and it seems like most of the commentators, and not just in the you know the, the guy that blogs in his basement, but the, the major guys out on ESPN and beyond, are kind of arguing that in many ways she is the greatest athlete of all time. And then, of course, you have the person next to them chiming in with, no, well, there's, you know, LeBron or Michael Jordan or Muhammad Ali or Tom Brady or all the like. Let's be real, not Tom Brady. Um, (sighs) Sorry, (laughs) that one was just for me, right? But, But it's this discussion because here's the thing, we love to do this with people, especially celebrities, especially athletes, right? Almost every Sport in some way, whether it's a big deal or a small way, has their their Hall of Fame, their people that, you know, are elevated to, to a status that is elite and beyond all others. They've contributed to the sport in some significant way. We have one of those Hall of Fames just down the street, and I was reflecting oddly this week that I've actually never been to the Football Hall of Fame. I've lived here for like 12 years now, and I've never had the chance to go, so someday, maybe with Graham will be the first time that I have the chance to go, or with Aaron, but I might actually check it out. We love to rank the people as to who is the best and the greatest, right? The the disciples did this amongst themselves, right? There's verse upon verse of them in Jesus' ministry and they're walking around and they start to grumble among themselves and start to say, you know, I mean, he loves all 12 of us, but like, let's be real, the three of us are like the inner circle. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. This gets to the point where they even ask Jesus, who is the greatest? We want to know who the greats are in our lives, in whatever field it is that you're passionate about. Right? Now, you can have an argument with me after this of whether or not Serena is the greatest art, you know, athlete of all time. I think that's kind of irrelevant to our <clears throat> point of today. But Jesus himself, the Lord in Scripture, <clears throat> sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. <clears throat> that's why my coffee's here. Jesus in Scripture has his own hall of fame. If you're looking through the verses of the Old and the New Testament and you're looking at all these characters that the Lord uses over the course of the Israelite history, you ask yourself, who are the greats? And in part, we know, we kind of know these are bigger deals than other people, right? But the Lord himself has what we would call a, a heroes of the faith, a hall of fame, so to speak, of people that God says are the greats. And we find that list beautifully spelled out with their accomplishments in Hebrews 11. That chapter is known as the great heroes of faith, the hall of faith of God's people. These are the people that God says they were the ones that really exemplified stuff, right? And we have a whole list of them. There's Abel, Abraham, Jacob, Rahab, Samson, Samuel, Enoch, Sarah, Joseph, Gideon, Jephthah, the prophets. There's some judges in there. You should remember that from January Noah, Isaac, Moses, Barak, and of course, David, right? You have these people that we just look at in Scripture and we go, yeah, we want to be like them. They're the hall of fame, right? And the Christian community just takes this this idea of God's hall of fame and really elevates it, right? We have movies devoted to these guys. There's no movie, movie about like, some random guy that you've never heard of in the middle of numbers somewhere, right? It's not like they make a movie about the genealogy and somehow look at, you know, random cousin so-and-so. But there are people in Scripture that God elevates, right? We have whole movies devoted to this. One of the first Christian movies I ever saw, and I just, if you liked it, I'm sorry. I kind of found it to be really cheesy and mediocre. Um, This was before Christian movies started getting good. There was a movie called Facing Giants, and it was this play off of David and Goliath, this football play, right? Right? And I remember watching it shortly after watching Remember the Titans for the first time and just thinking, wow, they stink at making movies. I like the message, but mm. mmm. We we love to make stuff out of the heroes of the Bible. Does anybody know P.B. Bliss's 1873 hymn, Dare to be a Daniel? Anybody out here like, yeah, right? We're supposed to dare to be a Daniel. But there's a major problem with this list, this hall of faith. And that's that every single one of them are abysmal, deeply rooted, wretched, dirty, filthy sinners. These are flawed people. I had a seminarian professor that would gripe about this. He goes, yeah, raise your hand, and actually do this in the church that you grew up in. Raise your hand if in your church growing up, somewhere there was a mural of the Noah's Ark. About a third of you, it looks like. It's pretty common. My, my church had As a matter of fact, I won't mention the name, but the church I worked at before I came here has a beautifully painted mural of Noah's Ark. And th- I'm not trying to harp against them at all. The lady that painted it is a wonderful woman of God, and she is a gift, and it is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. A seminary professor said, you know, isn't it funny that we decorate our children's wings with a mural depicting Genocide. The story of Noah is the story of God being so fed up with humanity that he picked one guy in his family to carry on the lineage and then killed everyone else. It's the one time in human history where God was so angry that he literally wiped out all people. And we put it on there because the kids like the animals and they all walk two by two, and we have songs and all kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't teach our kids the Noah story or even that we're sinful if we have a mural up, but it, it does cause for reflection and it does call to attention just how quickly we elevate these stories out of their context and we, we put these people on pedestals, right? There's a disconnect here. Why is God hailing these people in Hebrews 11? when they are deeply flawed sinners. An undergraduate professor who used to say, if David applied to be your pastor, you would never hire him. Or if you did and you found out what his history was, you'd fire him and probably get him to go to prison. Right? If you found out tomorrow that about 10 years ago, I was an adulterous murderer, would I be preaching here next Sunday morning? Probably not. Right? And so it's weird. We have this, hailing of these people. The Lord lifts them up as as heroes of the faith, it seems, and yet they are sinners that don't deserve it. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a few of the people in this so-called hall of faith, these heroes. And our series is called Flawed because just like them, every one of these people is deeply rooted flawed. They have major issues it's not just that they're a little bitter sometimes. It's not just that they lived a wonderful, perfect life, but they just had this one little, oh, like they didn't do it quite right. These people were deep sinners that had real issues, deep flaws that many of us would look today at as a disqualification for ministry. right? And so we're going to look at them with a couple different questions in mind. The first, so we're simply going to say, what can we learn from the sin and the shortcomings of the individual people that the Lord hails in faith? And second, the bigger question what is God's purpose in this list in Hebrew 11? If they're all such terrible people, why is He hailing them? And what does it say? about us and how is it supposed to influence the way that we look at the people in scripture that we treasure and hold and dare to be like and want to slay giants just like and want to lead like them and we want to do mission like them and we want to teach like them and emulate them. How are we supposed to see these so-called heroes of the faith in light of this text? That's our goal for the next few weeks and today we're going to start by looking at Moses. Moses is a tough character to start with because Moses is almost kind of like a second deity to the Israelite people, right? If you wanted to get in trouble with any Jew at any point in biblical history, just say something bad about Moses. It's the quickest way to get kicked out of anywhere if you make it out alive, right? Moses is the undisputed goat of Bible world to the Christians, to the Jews, right? Other than Jesus, it's almost like he is Jesus, you know, the beta version in some way. They love Moses. And so we'll look at him in the words of Hebrews 11. And this is the section starting in verse 23 through 28 that deals with Moses. So I would invite us to stand as we read from God's word together. And we'll stand quickly just a couple times today. So if you want some up-down calisthenics, today's your day to be here. Hebrews 11, 23 through 28 By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. These heroes of faith, every one of them has a similar paragraph. Some is a sentence, some is longer than Moses, but they describe kind of the accolades. Why is it that God thinks that they belong in this hall of faith? And for Moses, he gives a couple. First, he gave up his right as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, right? He, he didn't allow, when, when the people of God were being mistreated, he stepped in where he should have kept away and let it go on so that he could retain his status. Moses had it made growing up as the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He had everything he ever wanted. Anything he ever desired was brought to him. He had the good life. But he gave it up in order to be with his people. And the Lord commends him for that. And we should too. That's a good thing. He surrendered his safe, cushy life in order to be identified with God and his people. He demonstrates that he wasn't afraid of anyone as the Lord called him to do things, right? Eventually he he walked into Pharaoh's court fearlessly, and he challenged him, and he pushed against him, and when Pharaoh's magicians tried to replicate miracles, he held steadfast, and the Lord kept using him over and over again, to the point where Pharaoh was convinced by Moses to let the people go. And he carried them out of Egypt, across the sea to freedom. He's also commended for keeping the original Passover when the Lord, through the final plague, kills off the firstborn children of anyone who doesn't have the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, and then afterwards, subsequently celebrating the Passover year after year, Moses not only helped the people get out of Egypt, but each and every step of the way, as they're wandering, year by year, he reminds them of what the Lord has done for them. He is the, the steadfastness in the midst of a people that are wavering, Right? The day after they're secured, they're on the other side. They start gripping about food, and they just say, Oh, Lord, that we might be back in Egypt. And Moses says, Guys, you were delivered. Remember, don't ever forget. Right? Today is a day where we as Americans say, Never forget. Well, Moses said it first. Every single time they were tempted to think the Lord wasn't at work in their lives, said, Look, never forget what God has done for us. And he steadfastly reminds them, it's difficult to argue with the resume of Moses. Moses was a pillar of truth in the lives of the Israelite people. But Moses was denied entry into the promised land. Right? At the end of his days, Moses dies as a punishment of the Lord without ever being able to step foot into the promised land that they were wandering to get to. He gets right up to it, and he doesn't get to enter. So why? What are Moses' shortcomings? What are his faults? We see him as this hero. Let's bring him down a couple notches into the reality of who he actually was. And there's two real issues that Moses had as an individual that we see in scripture. The first was that his faith was really not that strong at first. And the second was that Moses had some anger issues. Anybody here have some anger sometimes? I did just in the last 48 hours. Moses is called by God to deliver his people. We've all heard the story of the burning bush, at least most of us have. We discover that that, that the Lord wants to have Moses be the instrument that he uses to get the people out and that he's going to speak through Moses, that he's going to work through Moses, that he's going to deliver miracles and judgments through Moses and plagues through Moses and all these things And when the the Lord first calls him, Moses seems to make every excuse in the book to not be the one that is used as God would want to use him. He reveres the Lord. He takes off his sandals for he's on holy ground and he engages with God. But he tries to get out of it. The first time he questions it, he says he's scared and worried of failure. He says, the Egyptians won't believe me. Are you kidding me? If I go into Pharaoh with the stuff you're telling me to say, he'll have my head. He's not going to believe anything I say. Right? The Lord says, I will make him believe you. I will cause you to have success because it's my work that you're doing. And then Moses tries to get out of it by saying, well, I'm not the most eloquent guy. Right? Would anybody here be afraid to come up and preach? Not because you don't understand the Bible, but because you feel like you're not very eloquent. Right? That's Moses' excuse. There's got to be someone better suited than me who has the words, the way with words, who can get up in front of the people and persuade them with an eloquent oracle of some kind. Why would you use me? I'm a simple guy. I don't really know how to talk in big crowds. I don't know how to be eloquent. I don't know how to make a point in a way that convinces people. I've never really been the persuasive guy. He tries to get out of what God has for him. And the Lord keeps putting every obstacle out of the way. And He says, listen, I don't care if you're eloquent. As a matter of fact, One of the things we know about God and how he works throughout human history is the less eloquent we are, the more glory he tends to get when we're successful. Because the more obvious it is that it wasn't us that did it, it's God that did it. So he persists to use Moses. And Moses has a tremendous steadfast faith throughout his accounts in scripture. But it doesn't start that way. He doesn't start as somebody who's rock solid. He wavers. And he's scared And he's nervous and he's hesitant to trust the Lord. And so if that's you, you and Moses can hang out together in good company. Because the faith that we see and read about was developed by God in Moses over the course of time. There's a sermon right there that God develops us over the course of long periods of time. And if your faith isn't where you want it to be right now and you're wondering how you might get there, the Lord might just say to you, be patient and persist with me. and I will develop you the person I'm calling you to be. We could preach a whole sermon just on that little part, but we have more work to do. Moses, however, gets in trouble, not because of his fear or his hesitation. Moses gets in trouble because of his angry temper. And when you read Scripture, maybe you don't think of Moses as an angry guy, but there's a whole bunch of instances where Moses gets overly mad in the situations that he's in. He breaks the stone tablets in anger, but the disqualifying event the thing that gets Moses denied the promised land happens in Numbers chapter 20. Let's take a look. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, actually, stand up. If it's like more than a sentence or two. I'll just make you stand. Right. You get up, down. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear you, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. and The congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribeth where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. All right, you can be seated. The previous instance, um, in Exodus 17:6, the Lord commands Moses to actually strike a rock so that water might come out. So this isn't out of out of the blue. But in this instance, the Lord is trying to demonstrate his faith and his care of the people, and so he tells Moses to assemble them all. That they're they're groaning, they're complaining about lack of food and water and all the comforts that they want. And he says, "Listen, go to this rock and just just speak it." Just speak the words, say, thus saith the Lord, come out and water will emerge and they'll believe again that I am who I say I am. And Moses goes and he gathers the people and they're grumbling and they're moaning. And in the midst of it, Moses is just fed up. He is tired of wrangling the cattle. Right? He's tired of dealing with the sheep It's like, how dumb can you be? How often do I have to convince you that the Lord is who he says he is? How many miracles do you have to witness? You had food fall from the stinking sky for crying out loud. And you still doubt him every step of the way. And then his anger and his frustration, he forgets what the Lord commanded him. And instead of calling upon the rock, he just takes it and he just beats the thing. Because Moses lashed out in anger. It wasn't... A horrible anger. It wasn't a bad anger. It wasn't that he was exceptionally mad. It's the kind of anger that I would have if, if, if Graham, for the 15th time in two minutes, just couldn't listen to the thing that I'm telling him to do. And I'm like, what the did you do? If you're a parent, you have felt that anger weekly, daily, <laughs> hourly. Quite frankly, I haven't felt it yet today, and I'm shocked, probably because I've been here for many hours. But, but Moses just had it. And here's, here's the key his, his anger isn't that awful. Right? It's, it's kind of justified. The Lord instructs him to speak, and the Lord withholds the promised land from him because instead of speaking, he hits it. And while God's people get to move on, Moses never gets to enter the land. God holds his temper against him, right? his anger is justified. People are a huge pain. But what God communicates so clearly through Moses in this instant is that angry tempers do not fly in the kingdom of God for God's people. Even when that anger is righteous, even when that anger is justified, even when that anger is directed towards things that the Lord himself should be and would be angry about, we are not called to have anger. Vengeance and anger are the Lord's and the Lord's only. They do not belong to us. Sometimes we lead lives of anger. Sometimes we project that anger on other people and we ask ourselves, well, isn't it good to be angry at the things God gets angry about? If the Lord would be mad at this person for their sin, shouldn't I be mad at this person for their their sin? Sometimes anger is just the way we have to communicate our point. Some people will only listen to us if we're angry. It's the only way. Isn't it justified? What am I favorite you know, movies. I live in the world now where I watch movies that three-year-olds watch, and so I don't get to watch cool movies anymore. If anybody here has seen Top Gun Maverick, don't spoil it for me. I've been waiting still to this day to see that, but someday. But one of my favorite movies that lives in the kid movie world right now is the movie Inside Out. If you haven't seen the movie Inside Out, it's, a, it's, a, it's an animated film from Pixar. And it's the the personification of this girl's emotions as she grows up. They're the emotions that live in her head and control her, right? So you have joy, sadness, anger, you know, disgust, fear. All these emotions are like characters in her head. And it's it's a story of her processing a real traumatic event in her life. She's She's a young girl, and she moves from Minnesota to San Francisco, and all of those things that happen when you become, you know, kind of a, a teen, when you get into that realm of like 10 to 15 years old, and things start to change in the way you process. And it's really well done. As a matter of fact, most people that work in the fields of psychology have looked at this movie and hailed it. But anger is one of the emotions in Riley, the main girl. And it's personified, it's voiced by... Um, by Lewis Black, which is like the most perfect casting ever, because everything he ever says sounds angry, right? And so they personified him, and and there's a moment in it when he, through his anger, uses the anger emotion to convince her to run away from home, and later tries to undo it and can't, because she has gone so numb to her emotional responses that she doesn't listen to anything her emotions tell her to do. And there's a a point towards the end of the movie where he looks at it and says, what have I done? that's anger. We almost always regret what we say and what we do in the midst of anger. One of the commentators I read said this really, really well. He said, anger is one emotion that doesn't realize consequences until it's too late. Chances are, That few, if any of you, have ever said or committed any actions in the midst of anger that if you could go back, you wouldn't want to change. As God's people, we're not called to operate out of anger. The Lord calls us to cede our anger to faith. It's not meant to be wielded by us. It's too powerful of a thing. Only God can wield anger in a truly righteous in controlled way that makes a positive difference. And Moses is denied, furthermore, not just because he's angry, but because of the root of his anger. His actions don't honor God as Lord. Right? By disobeying God, he's saying that I have a better way of doing it than you do. Right? And it doesn't give God the holiness and the credit he deserves. Right? What does he say? Should I and Aaron now provide you water? Bam. Who was the source of the water? Moses and Aaron. Was it God now? He should have given credit to him and he didn't. And so this angry move in Moses' case didn't realize its consequences until it was too late. Because he committed his action in anger and didn't follow God, he ended up not accomplishing with that miracle what God wanted him to accomplish. God didn't get glory and the people didn't learn that it was God that sustains them. What the people learned is that Moses, in anger, beat a rock, and they got the water they wanted. Right? And so he's denied entrance because of this slip-up. So we're left with this dichotomy. We're left with Moses, who is this great hero, but yet this one little seeming thing you know, prevents him from gaining access into the promised land. And, and I think a lot of times, like we look at things like this in our own lives, and maybe even for Moses, and we might say, what's what's really the big deal? Like, right? Isn't God a God of forgiveness? Look at all the, the, the resume, the great things that Moses has done. You're really not going to let go the, that he screwed up this one time, that he failed to do what God called him to do? Really, because of all that, after hundreds of years of leading God's people out, that you might deny him entry into the promised land? And If you're like me, you might read Numbers 20 and say, really, is it that big of a deal? But God's denial of the promise breaks the theory that it isn't a big deal. God is perfectly just in his anger against Moses and his disqualification of Moses. This to us should be terrifying. Because I don't know about you, but I've gotten angrier than Moses in the last week. And I don't have the resume he has. I don't think you do either. If you've led like an entire tribe of people out of out of oppression and into the the righteousness of God, come talk to me and we'll talk about how we might effectively use you as a minister of evangelism in our church or something like that. But chances are you don't share the resume of Moses. So if Moses didn't get in, if Moses didn't get to see the promised land, what chance do you or I have? Pretty slim, right? Thankfully, there is more to Hebrews 11 than meets the eye. The key to understanding the hall of faith is at the beginning and at the end of the chapter. You might have not read the Hall of Faith passage, but most of you have at least heard the opening verse of Hebrews 11. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. You might have that on a plaque in your house somewhere, because Hobby Lobby sells like a dozen of them. That's where that verse goes. That's the first thing it says, and then it starts the list. By faith, Abel did this. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, David did this. By faith, Barak did this. By faith, right, over and over. By faith, Abraham and Sarah did this. And we'll get into all of these over the next few weeks. But one of the things we notice is faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Two things. Faith is certainty about the future that God proclaims, as if it was now, right? To have faith in God's promises is to, to see them as already realized even though they're not yet fully realized. We live as if the promises that God makes to us have already happened and they are yes and amen. And if you hear here last week, you learned what amen means, right? We agree with it. And second, it's certainty that you can see things that are not yet seen. And so you see the realities of God's kingdom that are ushered in when he comes again. You can almost see it like it's here, even though it's not yet visible. That's what faith is. We live by the assurance of things we hope for and are promised. And we live with the conviction as if we can already see the things we can't yet see. And then he lists by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And here's how Hebrews 11 ends after all of these people are introduced in the Hall of Fame. I won't make you stand for this one. And all of these, through commended through faith, did not receive what was promised. So all these people, great as they were, didn't receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And then 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The people who are in God's hall of fame aren't there because of them. They are there because of God and what he has done. They are there because they had faith and they saw it and God used them. Their accomplishments aren't their own. They didn't do stuff that was so star-spangled great. They just had faith. They saw God and they believed in his promises. And that's the only thing that they get to their credit. Moses' steadfastness didn't come because Moses was a steadfast guy. His steadfastness came because over and over and over again, God made a promise and God delivered. And God made a promise and God delivered. And eventually, Moses just got used to it. So to you, you read Moses and you go, wow, what a steadfast guy. What happens is, no, what a steadfast God. He was just reacting to the situation he was in. Every time the Lord said he's going to do something, he does it. So eventually, Moses just assumes that the Lord is going to do what he says he's going to do. Because of faith. David isn't a grand king because of who he actually is. We'll get into David in a couple weeks. But David's an adulterous murderer. He's great at leading because the Lord gifts him and uses him and puts him in the right places in the right time. Do you really think David killed Goliath because of his awesome aim skills? With five smooth stones? No. God made that rock fly right through Goliath's skull. Because that's what God does. He uses his people for his purposes, as he pleases, when he pleases. And he used David just like he used anyone else. He used Abraham. He chose Noah not because Noah was righteous. People think that. Like Noah was the one guy that was faithful in all the world. And so he got to live. No. Noah was just as wretched as the rest of them. But God chose to work through Noah because he had faith. He said, go and build this thing. And Noah said, okay, I'll do that. That's all it is. This is what our mind does with idolatry. We we, we take people in Scripture and we somehow make them the thing to emulate or elevate. No one in Scripture, hear me really clearly, no one in all of Scripture is meant to be glorified, hailed, raised, emulated, other than Jesus himself. They're not heroes. There's only one hero in the Old and the New Testament. and It's not Moses. It's not Abraham. and It's not David. It's none of these people. We were not meant to dare to be Daniels. We'll never sing that hymn here. We're meant to dare to be the people who God calls us to be. We're meant to dare to be faithful. This is what our mind does with idolatry. We, we worship things rather than the one who created the things. And we can celebrate aspects of the lives of godly people. We can say, you know, Moses did some good things here. You know, we, we could try to, to, to kind of emulate that. But we don't hail him as a hero of the faith. The whole point of Hebrews 11 is that God says, by faith he did this, by faith he did this. But guess what? None of them got entry. The thing that ultimately gets them into the hall of fame is Jesus, who not only authored the faith that they displayed, but he is the one who perfected it. Jesus is the author and perfecter of Moses' faith. He took Moses, who was a cowardly little weakling, and he authored his faith into existence so that he might believe. And then he perfected it over years so that the Moses we see is the polished by Jesus version. It's not the real Moses. That's Moses plus Jesus. Right? God did that, even though he was a deeply flawed guy. The reason this is so damaging is because emulating Bible characters puts faith out of reach. And here's what I mean by that. We can't seem to measure up. How many of you feel this way? I couldn't be as good of a missionary as Paul. Paul. Right? I, I can't be a good leader compared to a Moses. I can't be a good prayer compared to David. I mean, for, for all sake of heavenliness, he wrote the, the book of Psalms. I could never pray like that. If you ever call me to pray out loud, I'm going to be nervous because compared to David, I sound like a buffoon. I could never pray like him. I can't be fearless and steadfast like Noah. And a whole town is mocking me for building a boat that the Lord in the sky called me to build... I could never do that. What we do when we idolize the people in Scripture is we start to say that we could never do those things. And the reality is we couldn't unless the Lord wants to use you to. Do you realize every single one of you in this room has the potential to have the effect in this world that Paul had? If God wants to use you to be a Paul, he will use you to be a Paul. He doesn't care how good or eloquent of a speaker you are. You'd be the next Billy Graham... You get up on stage and you open a Bible and you're shaking your legs because you're so afraid to preach. If God wants to use you and you just say in faith, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do what you ask me to. That could be you. You could, you could pray in such a way that makes the Psalms look weak if the Lord puts the words into your mouth. Right, The only person we emulate is Jesus. God is is special in these people, and God can do the same thing through you. The only ingredient is the faith to believe and the assurance the things that we hope for and see with conviction the things that you can't see. You might say to yourself, yeah, I don't see myself that way. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. You are not the founder and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is My challenge to you is to stop looking at others, whether it's others in this room or others in this book or others in your life and in your family that have gone before you. Pray earnestly and expectantly that God will do a work in you and through you and seek his face as if you already have the promise made but not yet realized. Live as if you can already see heaven even though you can't already see heaven. If that's your treasure, if that's your goal, if that's the thing you're striving for and aiming for, because you know that it was promised to you and it is due you because of the promise, it affects the things that we hold dear and how we look at the world around us and what we value and what we care about and how much we're willing to step out in faith for the thing, right? There's a passage upon passage in Scripture, right, where, like, that the person finds the buried treasure and he buries it and he sells everything he had so he can go get the treasure. This week was the Apple iPhone keynote I love my phone. It's over there as the camera. Was, I'd hold it up. It's like three years old, four years old, four years old. I love that phone. Until this week. I saw the new one. I don't really like my phone anymore. Why? Because I, because I have seen something greater. Now, it's a really terrible analogy in terms of the kingdom, but it's the way that it ought to work when we are confronted with the reality of the promises of God. The stuff in this world, the choices that we make, the things we hold dear, where our faith is currently placed should just kind of naturally fade away as God works and perfects us because we start to see that, wow, there's something so much better. And contrary to iPhones, God's kingdom isn't going to have a version 2 the next time. It is what it is, and it's magnificent, and it's all you could ever ask for and imagine. And if you saw it, if you could see it, if you could see what life eternal with God looks like, if you could get one little iota of a glimpse, one second of what life will be as a Christian on the other side, you would ditch everything in its path to go for that. By faith. That God authored and that he perfected it. Will you allow the Lord to be the author and perfecter of your faith? Will you place your trust in him when he calls you to something that he will get you there as he promised? Will you step out in faith even when you think you don't qualify? Because God can use you in whatever way he sees fit. Not because you belong in some hall of faith. No one in Hebrews 11 belongs there. They're there because God put them there so that we might resonate with them, not hail them as heroes, but alongside of them say, wow, God uses sinners. Maybe he can use me. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you, through your holy word, speak truth to us. We thank you that you give us examples of faith. But Lord, we, we ask for forgiveness when we tend to idolize the people that you put before us in your word. You didn't mean to put them there to, to be something to strive towards or to live for, but that you only want us to live for you. And so, Lord, we ask that you might steer us clear of the idolatry that we commit to. We ask that we might have nothing but a faith in you. And we pray, Lord, boldly, that you might use us in a mighty way. We pray that the things that you've been calling us to do for years, the little steps that you've been calling us to take, that we as disqualified and as unworthy as we feel might be willing to step out and say, yeah, here I am, Lord. Use me. Author my faith. Bring it to life. Perfect it. Work it out with fear and trembling until I can one day stand as someone who is in that great hall of faith, not because I deserve to be there, but because you have pulled me there every step of the way. Be with us as we seek to live out of this reality this week. We love you, and we praise you, and all God's people said, amen.